Well, thank you guys. If you have your Bibles today, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 4. We're going to be starting in verse 18. Uh, we're going to get there in a few minutes. Uh, if you're a note taker, I'm going to warn you, we're going to spend a lot of time on the first paragraph of your notes. Uh, we'll get to the other. It'll probably be a pretty normal amount of time we spend together today, but I, I know those notes are advantaged because you know when I'm getting done, but if I spend a lot of time on note number one, people freak out. So don't... Uh, don't worry, we'll, we'll get there. I want to start today uh, by, by asking you just a real simple question. What comes to your mind w- when I say the word Christian? You know, when, when I say the word Christian, what, what comes to your mind? Now, I know this is how we describe ourselves. We're a group of Christians. And that's the way most people would describe us. There are a bunch of Christians there. But what comes to your mind, other than us meeting here today, when I say the word Christian? Now let me maybe prime the pump a little bit, and we'll just play a word association game, okay? Um, don't answer out loud, but, but what's the first image that pops into your mind when I say, I don't know what, NASCAR fan? You know, what, what, no, don't say it out loud. Okay, okay. Or, 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 or how about vegan? You know, what, what pops into your mind? What image is there in front of you? Or, or, or when I say crossfitter, you know, what do you think? I know you're thinking of me. Think of something else. Whenever you think of crossfitter, what do you, what do you think of? Or, or when I say Star Wars, does your mind go to New Era or does it go to the good old stuff? You know, what, where does your mind go? Or when I say Louisville fans. Now, I know not all images are positive, but you've got some image in your mind. Or what's the first thing that pops in your mind when I say Bernie Sanders supporter? Or what's the first thing that pops in your mind when I say Trump supporter? You know, people can have very different images of the same thing. This is especially true when I say the word Christian. If I were to go out on the street and ask ten people, I'd probably get nine different answers. You know, if I ask people on the street, are you a Christian? Some would say, well, sure, I'm a Christian. Some would say, what do you mean, are you a Christian? Some would maybe say, yes, but I'm not like. Or some would say, no, but I'm not one of those. You know, people have lots of different versions. Same is true if I ask somebody, when did you become a Christian? There would be a lot of different uh, answers to that. Some people would say, well, I've always been a Christian. You know, I've been a Christian since I was born. Most of us here would say that, well, there was this point of time when I became a Christian. Either I took a class or I was baptized or I I said a prayer and I became a Christian. Uh, uh, Here's a strange fact, though. If you were to ask a New Testament person, someone who lived in the days of the New Testament when it was being written, either one of those questions... What pops in your mind when you hear the word Christian or when did you become a Christian? They would have looked at you extremely confused. The reason they would have done that is the word Christian is only found three times in the entire New Testament. The very first followers, they didn't call themselves Christians. In fact, it wasn't until several years after Jesus had left the earth that the term Christian was used at all. And it wasn't a name that they chose for themselves. In Acts chapter 11, verse 26, the Bible says, For a whole year they met with the church and they taught large numbers of people. 
And the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Now, we take this as a badge of honor. Man, I'm grateful if you call me a Christian. I'm thankful for you to say, that's a true Christian. I want you to do that. But when the people started calling the church at Antioch Christians, it was kind of a name shame. You know, it was a derogatory term. You just think you're little Jesuses, don't you? You just think you're little Christ. You see, they, they didn't call themselves Christians. In fact, they called themselves disciples. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Uh, it, 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 in the Bible, you see that over and over, the believers self-identified themselves as followers of Christ or as disciples. This term is found 281 times. Disciples in the New Testament alone. And, and, and there's... It's pretty obvious why they called themselves disciples. Everybody understood what that meant. The concept of discipleship was just an accessible term uh, to their audience. You see, most Jewish boys and girls started school at age six, kind of like our boys and girls start school at about age six. And they would go to the synagogue, and there they would learn the Torah, uh, you see, Jesus, uh, excuse me, Jews believed that God had given the, 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 his commands to Moses. And in fact, they believed that the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, were all given directly from God to Moses. And they called them the Torah, uh, the, the teaching, the instruction, the way. And this way was foundational for their lives, and it was the focus of the education system. Uh, it, from 6 to 10, they went to a school called Beit HaSefer. Uh, pretty easy uh, concept. It's elementary school. But their curriculum was incredibly different from ours. Their goal in Beit HaSefer was to memorize the books of Genesis to Deuteronomy word for word. And every 6 through 10-year-old in Israel would spend their time in elementary school memorizing the law of Moses. The best of the best would continue on. Uh, by the end of it, most of them had said, oh, this is not for me. But the best of the best would continue on into Beit Talmud, which was a, a, a place where they learned basic Jewish life. And oh, by the way, they memorized the rest of the Old Testament Bible, Genesis through Malachi. They would memorize it. You know, I mean, that's kind of amazing. Can you imagine memorizing Genesis through Malachi? They didn't have iPhones, so that's what they did, you know. And so their head was in their Bible. The cream of the crop would be allowed to continue to the next level or bait midrash. Or uh, a midrash means opinions. And, and that's where they would learn the way of a certain teacher. And, and here they would learn to become his disciple. And they didn't want to become a disciple just to know what he knew. They wanted to become a disciple so they could be the type of person he was. They... they they would go to the rabbi and say, Rabbi, I want to learn from you. And you'd never hear a rabbi say, Hey, sure, anybody's welcome. Join the club. No, they would grill them because they wanted to make sure that this young man knew his stuff. They wanted to make sure he had the mental capacity. They wanted to make sure he had the discipline to follow through. And if they looked this kid over and thought he had what 
it took, they would say, well, I guess you can come. And he would leave his family and his friends and his village and his way of life. And he would devote himself to following the teacher. When Jesus came, he flipped this on its head. He started calling people randomly to follow him. People didn't go up and say, would, would you let me walk with you? Jesus started going to individuals and say, would you be willing to follow me? And this was revolutionary. No self-respecting teacher would, would seek out followers, but Jesus chooses disciples. The disciples didn't choose him. He did the seeking, he did the calling, and he chose whom his disciples would be. And in every instance, and that's hard to say about religious things, but in every instance in the New Testament when a person was to become a disciple of Jesus, in every instance, he called them. He took the initiative. And I would dare say that that's still the case today. If you're a disciple of Jesus, it's not because you chose him, it's because he chose you. Before the foundation of the world, he called out to you, and he reached out to you, and he wooed you, and he gave you the opportunity to respond to him in faith. And if you've said yes, it's not because you were smart or you had a great idea or you said, man, it would be cool to follow Jesus. If you said yes, it's because the God of creation spoke to your heart and drew you. The Bible says no man comes to the Father unless they're drawn by the Spirit of God. Jesus chose his disciples the first illustration of this is found in Matthew chapter 4 that we're going to look at today. A pretty familiar passage, I know you know it, but let's walk through it today. And as he was walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. Simon, who was called Peter, uh, uh, and his brother Andrew. And they were casting their nets uh, into the sea because they were fishermen. The next verse tells us that Jesus looks at him and says, hey guys, Follow me, and I'll make you fish for people. Immediately, they left their nets and they followed. Verse 21. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers. James, the, uh, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, and they were in the boat with Zebedee, uh, who, who was their father, and, and, and they were mending their nets, and he called to them, and verse 22, same response, immediately they left their boat. They, they left their father, and they, and they followed him. As I think about the calling of Jesus and his revolutionary method of choosing people to follow him, and I, I, I'm amazed because Jesus' hit list of who he called, they weren't A-listers. You know, they weren't the Kentucky Derby party people. You know, he, he's not looking for, the, for those who, who are at the top of the, the, the heap to, to follow him. He's looking for people who will be faithful to his task. And so he reaches out to the willing. John MacArthur explains it this way. He says, in choosing his disciples, Jesus skipped all the A's of his day. Great scholars were in Egypt. A great library was in Alexandria. Great philosophers were in Athens. Powerful men were in Rome. He passed over Herodias, the historian, Socrates, the great thinker, and Julius Caesar, the great ruler. 
He chose ordinary men to be his disciples. So ordinary it was comical. Not a single rabbi, not a single teacher, not a single religious expert, not even a synagogue ruler. Half of his disciples were fishermen. One of his disciples was the equivalent of an IRS agent. You know, one of his disciples was a former terrorist. He chose the B team for sure because he wanted to prove a point. His work does not come from the talent of his team, but from the power that he instills in them. Jesus taught that his power in the weakest vessel was infinitely greater than the greatest talent apart from him. And so Jesus brought uh, in this group of ragtag disciples to, to show the world this is the power of God. And he brought this home to the disciples a few chapters later in Matthew when he tells them this. He's talking about John the Baptist and he said, what did you go out to see, a prophet? Yes, I, I tell you, he was more than a prophet. This is the one it's written about. Look, I'm sending a messenger ahead of you. He'll prepare your way before you. And I assure you, among those born of women, there was not a person greater than John the Baptist. But he's the least in the kingdom of heaven compared to someone filled with my power. The, the least in this room is greater than John the Baptist. Jesus was telling his disciples that John was the greatest preacher that ever lived. John the Baptist was the greatest preacher hand down. I mean, Jesus on his iPod, he had a podcast of John the Baptist. That's who he listened to when he exercised. You know, but he says, I'm going to tell you the truth. The one who's least in my kingdom is greater than John. Least in the kingdom means you, you know, you know the least about the Bible. Least in the kingdom means you have the least amount of talent. Least in the kingdom means you're the least eloquent. Least in the kingdom means you have the least amount of spiritual gifts. Guys, somebody in this audience is the least of the kingdom at Porter. That's just mathematically a fact. You know, somebody in here is the least at Porter. That's the way it is. And you might be thinking, he's talking about me. And you believe God is like, yep, you're the bottom of the barrel there. You know. Even if that's accurate, I want you to understand that you have more potential in your life than John the Baptist. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has been invested in your life. It's no longer about your abilities, it's about your availability to Him. And He has two things of every person who follows Him. Uh, they're seen back in Matthew chapter 4. The first thing He says, simply follow me, be with me. And the second is, I'll make you fishers of, of men. So I, I put it this way, if, if, if you're going to participate in the following Jesus movement, then you have to follow him and you have to bring people to him. That's your task. Now, uh, guys, uh, when I hear the word follow me, I see people who try to confuse this all the time, but it basically says where you see Jesus going, that's where you go. What you see Jesus doing, that's what you do. How Jesus responds, that's how you respond. How Jesus loves, that's how you love. That's what it means to follow him. You're following his example. 
And to become like him, you've got to spend time with him and you've got to listen to his word. And that's why we offer so many outlets here for you. That's why we talk about Right Now Media today, so you can get in the word day by day. That's why we try to preach the word faithfully every week here, so you can know what Jesus was about and what he was doing. That's why we have our midweek opportunities for our children to learn Awana and for our teenagers to be in the Word and for our adults to hear the Word. We want you to be in the Word of God. And to follow Him, not only do you have to be with Him, you have to leave some things behind. Verse 19, again. Immediately they left their nets. Verse 22. The other brothers, James and John, leave their boat and their father. Why do you think these things are highlighted? Because they represent the two most significant things in your life. Boats and nets would mean your career. It's what you depend on to make it. It's how you eat. It's how you pay your mortgage. It's how Jesus has got to be more important than the way you make money. Your father represents your most significant relationships. Jesus has to be more important than your most significant relationships. If you're going to follow him, you've got to say, Jesus, you take precedence over all. Now, most of you, I'll be honest, let's be real, to follow Jesus, you're not actually going to lose your father or mother. Some of you will. But you're going to have moments in your life where you have to decide who holds greater sway over your life. College students, God might call you to go on a mission trip. And your parents are like, no, you're not going to go on a mission trip. You're going to make money to pay me back for everything I've just invested in your life. There comes a point in your life where you've got to say, I know mom and dad, but Jesus holds sway over my life. High school students, you might be in a place where you're the only one like you. Where you're the only one that says, I'm really going to follow Jesus. You're the only one who says, I will be faithful regardless of what everybody around me does. Who's going to have greater sway over your life? Businessmen, are you going to be faithful with the way you handle your books and the way you treat your clients? Or are you going to try to keep up by maybe fudging things? Who's going to have greater sway over your life? Jesus or external relationships? To follow Jesus means that you subject everything in your life to his lordship and you follow him. The second thing he said that we had to do is we had to bring people to Jesus. We would fish for people. There's example after example in the New Testament of people bringing folks to Jesus. And next week we're going to look at a few of those. But when people would meet Jesus, they wanted other people to know about him. They would become his disciple and they'd start sharing about how great he was. What Jesus is saying here is an essential part of being his disciple is sharing him with others. And Jesus says, if this is not a part of what you do, then you're really not his disciple. Let me me massage this in. If you don't share your faith, you're lying when you say that you're Jesus' disciple. You might believe that he died on the cross, but you're not following him. Because followers bring people to Jesus. Jesus. 
Jesus said so much. I'm not making this up. I'm not just, you know, trying to overstate this. Jesus said in John 15, 8, My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit. And when you produce fruit, you fish for people. People say yes to Jesus. When you produce fruit, you prove to be my disciples. We want to see you as a church to become a, a reproducing Christian. We want you to be a faithful fisherman. Uh, what's that look like? Well, I, I'll be honest, I don't fish. I, I did. When I was at Pellville, my first church, we had two fishermen in the church who both wanted to be on the pro circuit. You know, and so I had like eight bait casting reels, tons of rods, two tackle boxes of lures, and I never spent a penny. And those guys would call me at crazy hours. This was before kids for the most part. And they would say, hey man, let's go fishing. Sure. What time are we leaving? Four o'clock in the morning. Ooh, I don't feel good. You know, <laughs> But they were crazy. They would get their boats and we would pack a boat through the woods sometime to get to a pond that nobody knew about. Or we would get up in the middle of the night and we'd go out about midnight and we would fish the entire night through. They were crazy. They knew every pond. They knew every... Uh, 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 what? <laughs> something like that. Yeah. They, they knew every... Uh, uh, They knew that too. <laughs> they knew the. <laughs> they knew what the bottom of the of the lakes we went to looked like, you know. Even before they had all the cool stuff that showed you, you know, they knew it all. And they could. I mean, they were good, and they would go even when the fish weren't biting, because they loved it. They loved to fish. So when Jesus said, I'll make you fishers of men, I know what a fisherman looks like. I know what fishers of men look like. Fishers of men are actively bringing people to Christ. And let me ask you, are you a bringer? Some people in the churches that I have served constantly bring people to church. They're constantly telling people about Jesus. Pastor, you need to meet my friend. I, 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 want, you to, I want you to meet them. And I'll be like, hey, where'd you meet them? This morning at the donut shop? You know, I mean, they were constantly bringing people to Jesus. They were bringers. A fisherman for men leverages relationships for the gospel. We all have spheres of influence. Family. Friends, neighbors, ball team members, soccer moms, classmates, co-workers. Fishers of men see these networks as opportunities. Here's what I've experienced in my life, and I'm confident it's true. Most people come to faith in Christ through a personal relationship. That's how they come to faith. Some people get saved at a Billy Graham crusade. A lot of people do. Most people go to Billy Graham crusades because somebody takes them. Some people get saved on Sunday morning at church. Most people who come to church on Sunday morning come because somebody invites them. It's the way it works. God uses people to bring people. And we need to leverage our networks for the gospel. 
I'm, I'm going to go off notes for a second and tell you we live in a pretty tough time for churches. Oh, I'm not poor, pitiful us because the gospel is still powerful and Jesus has still saved my soul. And I'm not really that, cons- you know, I mean, church is awesome, but my salvation is because of the cross of Jesus and his resurrection. And no matter what happens in the United States, nothing changes those facts. He's died for my sin once and for all, and he's alive forevermore, and I celebrate that. Hallelujah. But we do live in a little bit tougher time for churches. You can't just open the doors and people just flock in because you're supposed to anymore. And, and it's hard to go out and knock on doors anymore. At least it is in my neighborhood. People will knock on our door, and my family hides. Right? That's, hey, hey, I get it. It's the world I live in. That's who I am. That's probably who a lot of you are, too. It's tougher than it used to be. Uh, in, in that regard. So, so, so how do you fish for people in a world like this where neighborhoods say no soliciting, no, no door to door? How do you, how do you, how do you fish for people? You leverage your networks. God puts you in your network for a reason. You know the person, the person who sits beside you at your work for a reason. You're, you were positioned in the classroom where you're positioned for a reason. You're in the job you're in for a reason. You're on the team you're on for a reason. And our first reason as believers is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ always. That is who we are. That is what we do. Fishers of men leverage their networks. Fishers of men invest in individuals as well. And they expect God to save. If you know a real fisherman, they're always planning their next trip... They're always cultivating a new spot, and they always have their eyes on the next fish. People who are faithful fishermen always have someone they're planning to share the gospel with. Man, I'm praying for John at work. Man, I'm talking to this neighbor pastor. Pray for me. I pray for this child who's in my class. I just really believe that, that their family needs Jesus so bad. I'm starting this conversation, Pastor. They're always looking for people to bring to Jesus. Jesus told a story that wasn't about a fisherman, but it was about a shepherd. You remember there was a man who had a hundred sheep and he lost one. And he left the ninety and nine to go after the one until he found it. And when he found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he comes home and he calls his friends and his neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. Because I found my lost sheep. I tell you in the same way. The angels in heaven rejoice over one lost person that comes home. You know I've heard this all my life. And I think you know what it means. But the lost sheep represent lost people. And the love of the shepherd represents the love of God. And the point of the parable is this. If God loves lost people shouldn't we? Everyone says that they value lost people, but let me let you in on a secret. You only value what you seek. That's just a fact. You you lose something that's worn out and you don't care for it, you don't care. You lose your wedding ring, you tear the house apart. You, You seek what you value. And you seek who you love. You can tell we're in a new sermon series. Beth, I'm going to come behind you for a second, okay? Okay? All right. We're in a new sermon series entitled, Who's Your One? The deacons right now are going to pass some stuff out to you. And guys, if y'all would 
deacons, the ushers, if you'd pass some stuff out to everybody. I want to talk to you about this new sermon series that we're starting. It's something J.D. Greer challenged us as Southern Baptists to be a part of. It's entitled, Who's Your One? Who's the one person that if, if they're not believers, your heart aches for them? Who's the one family member, one friend, one co-worker, one, one student in your class, one teammate, one neighbor, who's one person in your network that you know does not know Christ? You might say, oh, I've got 50. Praise God. But is there one that pops into your mind when I, if I were to ask the question, who do you know who's not a Christian? Who pops into your mind? Who, who, maybe I could ask it this way. Who can you not imagine heaven without? The Bible says that no person will enter heaven unless they confess Jesus is Lord. Let me repeat that. The Bible says no one will enter heaven unless they confess Jesus as Lord. Who is the one person that you can't imagine heaven without? Who does your heart break for? I have a challenge for you for the next 30 days. For the next 30 days, I want you to do four things. I want you to find your one. Today, tomorrow, the next day, I'd like for you to take this tab and this bookmark and to write down who your one person is. Who's your one? I'd like for you to keep it in your billfold, keep it in your purse, keep it in your pocketbook, put it on your mirror in the morning, put it somewhere where you're reminded every day about that one person. That's the first thing I want you to do is find your one. And then what I would like to see is that every person pray for your one. I've given you a 30-day devotional guide, prayer guide for your one, starting tomorrow morning. Even if you don't know who your one is, pray that God will show, it, show you who it is and start to pray for that person for the next 30 days. I would like you to spend time praying for them. There are scripture passages that you can read on your bookmark. They're in your devotional guide as well. But I encourage you to pray for your one. David Platt said this week, God wills to work through willing intercessors. In his sovereignty, God has not called us to watch history, but to shape history. Maybe I could say it this way. God responds when we pray. When we pray, God responds. So pray for your one. The second thing I'd like for you to do is I'd like to see you invite your one. I want you to put them in an environment where they feel the love of Jesus. Maybe you can invite them to church. That's awesome. We would take them. We'd love for them to come. If you're here and you're completely skeptical about who you are, we want you to show up every week. And if we're not the real deal seeking to love Jesus and lift him up as Savior of all, I understand your skepticism, but I want you to know our heart's desire is not for you to fall in love with us. We want you to fall in love with him. That's our heart's desire. We would love for you 
to invite people to church. But maybe your person, your one, is not a church person, and they would see what you're doing to them as offensive. If you were to ask them to church, I get that that could happen. Invite them to your home. Just invite them over to your house. And, and, and love them. Just love them. You know what I found? The love of Jesus is powerful. Now, this week I was talking to a construction worker. Y'all been so faithful in providing meals. We're almost getting ready to move in the next couple of weeks. We should be moving our offices, starting down the middle hallway, doing the front hallways over here. We'll keep you informed of what's going on in our construction. But I was talking to a construction worker this week because he was thanking me for the meals for like the last 20 weeks, every week, Y'all provided a meal for them. Uh, and they were just so thankful. We're not doing it this week because the numbers are starting to really diminish of the guys. And they said, let's wait until we get into the next phase and we'll pick back up at that phase. But I was talking to one of the guys this week. And he said, I love working here. I thought, I bet you do. I've eaten some of those meals too. You know, <laughs> And, he, and I, I was joking with him, and he said, it's not about the meals. He said, it's just different around here. There's a reason I want you to invite people into your home. People who are lost without Jesus, they don't know what the peace of Jesus can be like. They don't know what the joy of Christ can be like. They don't understand the calm that can come over a home and the joy that can fill a life. So, so invite folks to be around you. Being around people who are becoming like Jesus is fun. Then I'd encourage you to share the gospel with your one. It's the message of Jesus that changes people. If you're a Christian, it's because you believe in the death of Jesus for your sins. You believe in his resurrection to prove that he is Lord who is worth following. And then I'm going to ask you to do one more thing. So four things I want everybody to do. I'd really like you to do this fifth one. But here's the four. Find your one. Pray for your one. Invite your one. Share with your one. You got that? Here's number five. I'd like to have some accountability. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do. There's three of these boards around the church, one in the front and one an entry on this side, one in an entry on this side. When God gives you your one, I'd like you to come up and put their initials on the board. You don't have to put yours. I don't want you to write their name. I just want you to put their initials. I'm hoping that we have 750 initials on this board by the end of 30 days. There's probably about 900 adults in here, 950 adults in here right now. I'm hoping that the vast majority of you participate where you will say, I will pray for 30 days for my one. That's the commitment you're making. You're making step one, or you found your one, and you're making that commitment that I will pray for them. That's the only commitment you're making. Then, if and when you move to step two, there's a green marker. And circle that. My one has already been invited that I'm praying for. When you invite them either to your home or to church, circle that. Okay? There'll be markers right here on the board. I've not yet got to my red circle yet. 
But the red circle is when I've shared the gospel with them. It's not when they come to faith. I pray that my one comes to faith in these 30 days. But it's when they hear the good news of Jesus. If you'll do that, I would love to see what God does through the next month as we work hard. Because what could happen in a city like Lexington if a thousand believers started taking seriously what it means to follow Jesus and start bringing people to him? Revival could happen. And we could see our world changed. I pray that you will follow Jesus and, and be a fisher of men. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would use the words that have been shared to move your people to greater commitment, to be faithful to the task that you've called us to do. Lord, may we make disciples of all the nations and may the first nation we start in be our own. Help us to share the gospel with Lexington. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. At this time, we're going to have a time where if people want to respond publicly, they can. Maybe you'd like to pray with a pastor. Maybe you'd like to come and pray for your one today and start right here, right now, praying for your one. You can come to the altar and pray. Maybe you're here today and you're saying, Pastor, I hear you talking about Jesus and joy and peace and contentment and all those things. I don't have any of that. I would love to have a relationship with Jesus and you'd like to talk to somebody. We'd love to talk with you today. You can take a next step card and fill that out and mark that you'd like to talk with the pastor. And we'd be glad to, to contact you. You can give that to me or to one of our other pastors as you leave. Maybe you want to join our church today. Uh, you can either start that process. If you're ready to be presented as a member, you can come today. Maybe today you'd like to make a commitment to be baptized. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always. Maybe today you want to make that commitment. But if God speaks to you, won't you come as we stand and sing?